Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, we're in episode 80-something or 90-something of the podcast, uh, so uh, needless to say, we're not a very new podcast anymore, but for those of you uh, just tuning in, just listening uh, to this podcast for the first time, basically uh, what we try to do here in the podcast is I uh, bring on an author to discuss a uh, book of theirs that book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published you know a book we think uh, you guys out there would like to hear a discussion about so and then hopefully at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you you go out and uh, give the book uh, purchase the book yourself and uh, give it a read so yeah if you like this podcast please consider giving illiteracy a five-star review at apple podcasts or wherever wherever you listen to the show and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Olivier Zunz. And uh, Dr. Zunz is the James Madison Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Virginia. And he has held visiting appointments at the Collège de France and the École des Hautes Études in Sciences Sociales. See, I told you my, my, my French was terrible, uh, <laughs> among others. Uh, he has been the recipient of fellowships and research grants from the Ford Foundation, the Japan Foundation Center for Global Partnership, the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the National Science Foundation. And he is the author of The Changing Face of Inequality, Urbanization, Industrial Development, and Immigrants in Detroit, 1880-1920, Making America Corporate, 1870-1920, Why the American Century, and Philanthropy in America, A History. And he is also the editor of many volumes of the writings of Alexis de Tocqueville, including Recollections, the French Revolution of 1848 and its Aftermath, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville and Gustave de Beaumont in America, their friends, their friendship and their travels, uh, the Tocqueville Reader, A Life in Letters and Politics, and the Library of America edition of Democracy in America. And lastly, he is also the author of The Man Who Understood Democracy, the Life of Alexis de Tocqueville, which was published back in May by Princeton University Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Zunz, thank you very, uh, very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, and I'm uh, delighted to be here with you. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, before we get to the book itself, uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about uh, uh, people um, uh, mentioned in, in the book, not the text itself, but the uh, uh, the dedication, and then uh, in the acknowledgement section. So the book is dedicated to a friend of yours, uh, Michel de Certeau. Uh, who was he, and why is the book dedicated to him? Well, <laughs> he, he first, first he was a good, good close friend of mine, but he he was uh, a, a French Jesuit, um, an historian, uh, mostly of. Uh, 17th century witchcraft, as a matter of fact, wrote quite extensively uh, on on uh, the witchcraft uh, uh, in the uh, in the Ancien Regime, and uh, it's um, um, he he was also broadly defined a public intellectual, uh, widely writing in the press. Uh, wrote an important book on May 1968. Um, and uh, uh, he was an erudite, and one of his uh, book, uh, he uh, well, one of a point he often made, which I I took it to heart, 
um, is that history is never sure. That is to say, we can maybe line up facts, and uh, uh, but there are many different ways of interpreting them. Uh, so in, in so many ways, in writing history, we're, we're predicting the past. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just as difficult predicting the future. And, and that, that idea of his uh, always stayed with me. And, and the more I studied history, of course, uh, I've done this all my life, the more I was convinced of its genuine uh, uh, truth. Okay. And then uh, one more person uh, mentioned in the acknowledgments. Uh, uh, tell everybody about uh, Francois Furet and his influence on you in your, uh, in your development as a historian. Well, François Furet was, was uh, um, uh, a ma- major uh, historian of the French Revolution. Of course, you know, I was born and raised in France, as, mm-hmm. uh, as you can hear. Even <laughs> <laughs> though I'm 76 and I've spent my life in this country, I've always kept my French accent. <laughs> um, uh, my adult life, at least in this country. Anyway, uh, um, I met François Furet when I was a student in Paris in the 60s. Uh, he was uh, then a young man in his late 30s, early 40s. Uh, he was already quite well known, as no, not as famous as he would become. Uh, he He's the one who uh, introduced me to Dogville, told me I should read him. Uh, he became a close friend. Uh, uh, um, I... Uh, uh, remained in touch with him uh, throughout his whole life. Although he died, he was young. He was just seventy when he died. Uh, he um, and 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 uh, uh, that was in '97, if I recall correctly. Um, and at any rate, um, uh, François Furet became the president of the uh, École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, that is, uh, Institute for Advanced Study in the Social Sciences, and he asked me to. Uh, um, uh, create to, gen- to begin a U.S. history seminar at the Ecole. And I did this, I started this in 1982, and for 30 years every spring I ran this seminar at the Ecole uh, in Paris. So, so I think I've helped, thanks to François Furet's friendship, I've helped create a U.S. history program in France. I've kept it going for over 30 years. Were you? Uh, you just mentioned you uh, studied with him in in Paris in the sixties. Were Were you in Paris in uh, May nineteen sixty eight for the? Uh, I, I certainly the, was. Yeah. This is my age. This is my cohort. Yes. Yes, oh, I was. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, let's get to the book itself. Uh, uh, so, what made you want to write this book? You know, other other than your obvious. Uh, lifelong interest in, in de Tocqueville and the, uh, the person and his thoughts. Um, what was, what, uh, like, what made you want to write the book? What was the, what was the genesis of it? Well, uh, uh, the, the genesis of it is of course my long association with, uh, uh with, with Tocqueville, uh, as a reader, um, editor of his works, uh, uh, co-founder of a journal called the Tokyo Review, which we started in the late 1970s. Uh, friendships with uh, Tokyo scholars. Even though all of my scholarship, as you've mentioned, have been kind enough to mention some of my book titles, 
uh, have been mostly on 19th and 20th century U.S. history. I describe myself uh, for being, for well over 30 years, a, a Sunday talk villain. And, of course, uh, American readers are familiar with democracy in America, one of the most important books, maybe the best book ever written on democracy and the best book ever written on America. Absolutely. Uh, but, but, but Tocqueville also uh, was a, a, an extraordinary uh, letter writer. Uh, he, 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 was, he had a, a gift, a real personal gift for friendships, and for sustained friendships, sustaining them over the years uh, through uh, uh, daily correspondence. I cannot think of him not spending a day without writing a letter to somebody. And um, uh, and and I, I I became an avid reader of Tocqueville's letters to understand a lot of his thoughts. And I think through this uh, change of and, and I, I became kind of he became kind of a friend of mine somehow mm. by because of the way he was able to communicate his deep feelings uh, to many correspondents, uh, um, friends from childhood, as well as major intellectual figures in in Europe, as well as his American informants mm. of his um, uh, American trip of 1831-32. So I must say. I came to know the the person well uh, through this reading experience, also through this ed- ed- editing of his of his uh, major text, as you've mentioned in the introduction. And many friends have told me over the years, Olivia, you're the one person who should write this biography. Mm-hmm. And there was needed to be one biography, a new one, to be written, because the the. I felt very dissatisfied with the two existing ones. They were very good books in some respects, but but there was a, nonetheless a, mm. a, a new one was needed, and so I decided that was my turn. Yeah, I imagine as a historian, uh, it makes the job of writing uh, so much easier when uh, the person you're writing about is. Um, so pleasurable to spend time with, uh, yeah, like like Tocqueville. Uh, I imagine uh, partly that's why there's so many books written about uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln and, uh, say, Winston Churchill, for example, just because uh, um, it's 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 fun to spend time in their company. <clears throat> I don't know if that uh, holds true for say, oh, no, for, you're, for, you're say Napo- for say Napoleon yeah. or, or Hitler or anything like that. But uh, yeah, no, you absolutely. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right. There, there is a a a communic uh, you know a, a communication with the uh, of of uh, you know across the ages uh, with with uh, like-minded souls and mm-hmm. and I felt that very much with Tokyo. Yeah, great. So um, generally, Tokyo is a great writer, by the way. He's oh, yes. wonderful. He's a wonderful stylist, a wonderful writer. So it's a real pleasure. Yeah, he didn't, and, and it's, really, it's really interesting in that respect. I want to finish my final thought here: is that when you read Tocqueville, you think you're reading uh, 
somebody who is very close to you, a contemporary, mm. you don't you don't have the impression that you're reading somebody who wrote in the eighteen thirties or eighteen forties or fifties. If you read John Stuart Mill, you know immediately you're reading a nineteenth century writer. Mm. But if you read Tocqueville, you think, except for a few sentences that have aged, you're reading something that's a very modern form of expression. Right, that is talking directly to you. Or you're having a conversation, you know, in a, in a study or a den, something like that. Yeah, and he was very modest about his uh, about his stylistic gifts as a writer. Uh, he didn't think uh, himself um, uh, a great writer uh, stylistically, but I mean that's obviously uh, not the case. Yeah, no, he he. he... He, he was, and he has been now recognized as one of the best French stylists. Mm. Uh, he's in the, 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 the canon of great writers now. But I think even though he was modest about his own writing, he kept working at it, even writing, rewriting the sem- sentence up to 20 times until he reached perfect balance. Mm. Yeah. So you can see that in his manuscripts. You know, I've spent a lot of time with his manuscripts, and you can see that yeah. time and again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, um, the through line of much of his writing, uh, especially on democracy, uh, or, uh, or on politics just in general, is that, uh, Tocqueville believed that the pursuits of liberty and equality are intimately linked and that, uh, you know, equality is the, the engine of liberty, uh, but, but not as a means of of leveling, uh, but as a means of uplifting. Right, absolutely. That is, that is a key component. You know, one, one of the things one has to, to realize is that, okay, Tocqueville was born in a French aristocratic family in the aftermath of the French Revolution. When he was born in 1805, but his, his, his family had been decimated, largely decimated, in, during the revolutionary terror of 1794. His great-grandfather had been the lawyer who defended the king uh, during the king's trial, and he paid for, for that with his life. Uh, uh, several of his uh, children, uh, Tocqueville's grandparents, uh, Tocqueville's aunts and uncles, uh, were also sent to the guillotine. And it is a something of a miracle that his parents escaped prison so were freed and they were freed simply because of the fall of Robespierre and prison square opened up and they were just about to go to the guillotine themselves the next day. Uh, so he was, uh, the family was surviving the revolutionary terror and they were all loyal to the old Bourbon dynasty uh, that had been abolished. They were, they were monarchists through and through uh, for the absolute monarchy, and they lived in somehow in domestic exile uh, uh, in the, during the Napoleonic Empire, although a few family members barely did. At any rate, all of these people, for all of these people in these social circles of the old nobility, many of them actually having left France during the revolution, uh, and would only return much later during the restoration of the monarchy. Uh, all of these, for all of these people, equality was a bad word. Mm. Okay, one has to understand that very, very clearly. It was a bad word. It was, as you pointed out, 
it was the end of aristocratic privilege. It was leveling. It was putting them down. Okay? And Tozer very much had this, that was his ideas when he was a young man. I mean, that's, uh, everybody around him was thinking that. Uh, they were they were demoted aristocrats. They, they, they were, again, as I said, living in domestic exile. And, uh, um, uh, but yet, uh, uh, the real, so Tokyo was the only member of his family and his group of friends of, from his childhood to actually become a Democrat. And as the, uh, as times changed and it became clear to him uh, you know, he grew up during the restoration of the monarchy, but there was a revolution in 1830, creating a constitutional monarchy um, uh, and changing, you know, the family line from the old Bourbon dynasty to the, the junior branch of the monarchy, the Orleans, and adopting a constitution. I think we saw the wave of the future, you know? And uh, the young Tokyo, he was a young lawyer, um, an apprentice magistrate, an apprentice prosecutor. And, and he, he decided that he really uh, wasn't sure whether he could serve a constitutional monarchy. He was 25 years old. He, was, he thought he had no real future in uh, the legal career. Uh, he was not a very good public speaker. So being a prosecutor was not really something that he could do for, uh, and mm. and and he had no real sense of uh, the future. But he thought that he would go to America to see what a real democracy looked like and figure out whether he could ever live in one. Mm. Now the the brilliant move in this, and then I'll stop there and ask you more questions. But the brilliant move in there is that the liberal the, 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 the liberals in France, the people who at the time had liberal ideas, uh, were looking towards the British model. They were going to England to see how a constitutional monarchy functioned. Uh, Tokyo bypassed England. Uh, he didn't go there to study British institutions. He said, I'm going to go to America and see what a real democracy is like. And and uh, that was, I think, a brilliant move because he arrived in America with no preconceived ideas mm. about what he was to see. It's only later that he returned to England to figure out the um, sort of aristocratic origins of American democracy. But initially, he went to America directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I believe they're your words. I don't believe they're his. I can't remember uh, in the book, but... Uh, um, uh, says uh, Tocqueville, he's an aristocrat by heart and a, and a Democrat by reason. Uh, that, that, that basically explains him or his thought. Uh, but uh, getting to uh, him in America, so uh, again, you mentioned he decides to travel to America. He uh, goes with his friend uh, uh, Gustave de Beaumont, and, yeah. uh, who's a lifelong friend, except for uh, this one period of uh, stress in their friendship later on, but uh, they decide to travel together. Um, it's on the pretext of studying uh, prison reform there. But as you mentioned, uh, Tocqueville has larger ambitions uh, for the journey. 
Um, but is this uh, is this trip the the important event of his life? I mean, certainly for his career and his reputation. Uh, but it seems to me that you know uh, America remains uh, after this point. Uh, America remains central to his thought and action uh, throughout his life. Absolutely, and that I, I think is a, a point I very much wanted to make uh, uh, in the book, because um, uh, the biographies or uh, the narratives of Tolkien's life that exist in French uh, don't, don't really make that point to them. Uh, uh, the American trip was, a, you know, an interesting uh, episode, but uh, even though it was a book on America, Tolkien was always thinking primarily about friends. Um, well, in fact, I would think he was, he invested heavily in uh, American uh, 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 political, uh, uh, you know, political thinking, uh, constitutionalism, uh, uh, American culture, American social relations. And, and, and uh, even though uh, and as even even though he, he well with this with this background, he could then always think about politics comparatively. Mm-hmm. That is, he always had America in mind in talking about France. And he added England later on after his trip to America as the the tertium quid, as we say, as the third pole of comparison. Yeah. And the third pole of comparison, which was very significant. So one of the things that is really interesting in 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 uh, that perhaps one should understand in reading Tokyo is that it is never really a, a description of America in the 1830s, because because embedded in this text are always thoughts about France and England. Uh, and but without being, but Tolkien was never really specific about which place he had in mind, and he was he was uh, this, uh, 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 working out his theory of democracy. So it's much more uh, a book of, uh, a theory of what a democracy is, rather than a description of a one place. Mm. So even though you can find in democracy in America many sections where you say, oh yeah, sure, this is America. You also find many others where you say, well, that's really weird. It's not really the way it works, but it, it's, it's the outcome of a, a, a comparative thinking between different places. Mm. Um, you kind of touched on it there, but uh, uh, talk a little bit more about democracy in America. Uh, why... Um, uh, at least in my opinion, is it's still the uh, the best book yet written on America, and why it's still worth reading, you know, God, nearly nearly two hundred years later. Well, I, I think uh, um, uh, the um, as you pointed out, the the key thing is the relationship between. Uh, uh, equality and liberty. Tokyo thought of modern history uh, as a constant struggle between one and the other, 
and the outcome on finding the right balance between the two. So equality has to be uh, the source of liberty. That is to say, it has to be the mechanism through which one gives uh, ordinary people the chance to realize their potential. And so the obvious idea of liberty is not that you can do anything you want. You know, it's not uh, this kind of negative liberty. Uh, it's, it's mostly uh, a, a positive liberty, a, 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 a means, uh, the, the opportunity that you have to achieve what is greatest in you. And, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and one of the reasons why I think this book is still so important to read is this, this sense that finding this balance between equality and liberty is, is hard. It requires constant work. It can easily be lost mm. in favor of one or the other. And, 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 uh, um, Tocqueville always reminds us of the fragility of this, of this balance. But I think as a lesson for our day, this is, this is something we need to reflect on because we, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is very much the situation in which we are right now, losing this balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, how was the uh, how was the book received? It was published. Uh, the first volume was published in 1835, and the second volume in 1840. Um, so, uh, in France, it's the uh, it's the time of the uh, of the July Monarchy, the uh, the uh, Orleanist branch, the, the constitutional monarchy, monarchy under Louis Philippe. And uh, in America, uh, we're, we're the start of the uh, second party system uh, in the uh, the aftermath of the presidency of, of Andrew Jackson. How was the book received in France uh, and uh, in, and and in America especially? Okay, so so I think it's important here to make a, a clear distinction between the 1835 volume and the 1840 volume. Mm. The uh, 1835 volumes is really quite close to the American travel. Uh, that is to say, if you if you read, and I have actually edited an English uh, volume, an, an English version of it. If you read Alexis de Tocqueville, America, you know the big blue book there. It's a wonderful book, actually. Uh, 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 because it gives you all of the letters home and all of the mm-hmm. narratives of the 1831-32 travel and the notebooks. And it's, it's really a fantastic uh, compendium of their travel. Well, you you can recognize in the 1835 volumes many segments of conversation with John Quincy Adams, with, with uh, Nicholas Biddle, who was president of the bank, of the United States Second Bank, with Edward Everett, who was, uh, would then be a close associate to Lincoln, with Jared Sparks, the uh, uh, Unitarian minister who was so influential 
uh, in his conversation with Stockville, with John Spencer, who introduced Stockville to the Constitution, with Edward Livingston, who was Jackson's Secretary of State, and the great uh, prison reformer to Francis Lieber, a close political philosopher and friend of Stockville. So you, you find, if you know all of these sources, you recognize many conversations with them in the book, okay? Uh, so in that sense, uh, uh, the Book of Travel to America is a real companion to reading democracy in America. So, so, but the 1840 volume uh, uh, is written after two trips to England, uh, visits of uh, uh, in, uh, uh, familiarity with the British aristocracy on the one hand, familiarity also with industrial poverty after the visits uh, uh, of uh, Manchester and the cotton towns and Birmingham and the the, uh, 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 the all the industrial England mm-hmm. and and then uh, uh, also an encounter for the first time with real poverty uh, uh, in uh, rural poverty in Ireland uh, things that Tocqueville uh, uh, in eighteen in eighteen thirty was to do in England in America. Had, had no encounter with real poverty and no encounter with industry, uh, really. Um, he didn't even visit the textile mills in Laurel. So, so, um, so the 1840 volume integrates uh, the uh, British experience and it's much more theoretical. Uh, 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 and it actually became later on uh, with the growth of, social, of the social sciences in the 20th century, one of the, the second volume was often refer, referred to as one of the influential books in developing social science, uh, which the, the first volume was not. So, but the first volume was very popular in France because there was an avid appetite in uh, political circles for understanding uh, the American constitution and the American system. And this book was almost read as a textbook when it first came out. The second volume was far less popular in France because uh, it was too abstract. Uh, So it was only among intellectual circles, John Stuart Mill praised it to the sky, that it really made a big impact. And then of course, over the years, uh, uh, we began to think of the two volumes, but there's a big debate among Tokyo specialists as to whether it's one book or two. I personally think it's one book, but some people think it's two. (laughs) I think it's one book because Tokyo thought of it as one book. This is why he never wrote a full introduction to the second volume, because he had already written a full introduction to the first one. Uh, In America, it... um, uh, uh, it um, received some passing notice, uh, but uh, it didn't. Um, it, it, the the popularity of the book really didn't start to take off in in the United States until um, until the Civil War happened, and uh, then sort of just grew from there. Where uh, to the point now where it's you know a book that uh, uh, you know many students are. Uh, Required to read at least in in part in uh, you know high schools and uh, colleges. Uh, yeah, on well, the curriculum. absolutely, absolutely. Now the the thing is, um, um, 
uh, two, two things explain. Uh, I mean, initially, yes, the book was was not very well noticed in 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 America. Uh, actually, um, uh, Jared Spark in Boston uh, tried hard to find a publisher for it and couldn't. And the first edition was the first American edition was was called your John Spencer was uh, would would uh, become. Uh, a cabinet member, uh, 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 the little under was a New York state legislator. Um, and, uh, uh, the, so John Spencer managed to have a small edition done in 1838, but, uh, also, uh, Americans were hurt by the um, uh, theory of the tyranny of the majority. Mm. <laughs> in the first volume, and uh, and the British uh, press was uh, uh, highlighting uh, this feature in Tocqueville's volume and uh, why Americans were subservient to a tyranny of the majority, which is only a very small part of the book. Probably came out with uh, from a conversation we had he had with Jared Sparks when Sparks told him, "Well, in America, the majority is always right." Okay, so. So, so that that was that had difficult beginning in this country, mm. but yes, you're right. It really picked up. The readership really picked up in. Uh, and and by the way, the, those first American editions, Americans in those days, were not respecting uh, uh, copyrights. So Tolkien never got a cent from these American editions. Interesting, this is passing. And anyway, um, the, you're right. The, the book. Is Took on a new, whole new meaning, especially this conflict between equality and liberty, uh, uh, and the need to resolve it during the Civil War. Uh, the New England abolitionists rediscovered it and welded it as an important book. Also, I have to say that the real had somehow predicted the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, so, the book, um, the book really makes his reputation in France. In France, and then uh, shortly afterwards, he decides he wants to uh, enter politics to sort of, uh, you know, uh, put his ideas uh, into practice. But uh, politics is a field um, that is going to constantly <laughs> exasperate and uh, disappoint him and uh how much uh uh how much of his political career uh, how much did his political career uh, sort of put into uh put into stark relief the those uh, sort of conflicting elements of his identity you know the uh you know the aristocrat and the democrat well Tolkien very much wanted to be a manufacturer he, he he thought, you know, being an intellectual and writing books was good. And he spent a lot of effort in, 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 in those and wrote almost every day. Uh, but he wanted to be in the political arena. He wanted to make a difference directly. He didn't want to be a just a, a, a theorist. He he wanted to be out there. And he, he embraced major major reforms. Uh, you mentioned the prison reform. Of course, he was very invested in prison reform and what to do with 
prisoners and with how possible it was to rehabilitate them. Uh, and and he'd done a lot of work on that in America. That was actually the pretext he used to to get a, an official assignment uh, to go to America. I get a leave of absence from the Ministry of Justice and visit the U.S. So he had all this American background on American penitentiary reform, and he pursued that in France uh, quite effectively. Uh, he uh, embraced um, uh, other great causes, especially abolition, with the need to uh, abolish slavery in the French colonies, in the Caribbean. Uh, and uh, uh, that was uh, finally, well, it had been done in the French Revolution, but Napoleon had restored slavery, so it had to be re-abolished. And, and uh, the, it, was, it was finally done in 1848, during the revolution of 1848, but Tokyo uh, uh, fought hard for it throughout his uh, political career. He uh, embraced very much um, the possible reconciliation of church and state in French politics. And in that sense, to go back to something you said early on, the American experience was critical mm. because it thought that, uh, 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 that he had seen in the U.S. the possibility of a peaceful coexistence between church and state through the separation of church and state. That is, the less the less uh, the ministers talk about politics, the more influential the church was. And uh, that was for him the model that France had to adopt. It was very interesting in the, in Tocqueville's life because he himself, throughout his life, was a crisis of faith, mm-hmm. which he really resolved. But so, so you have here a very, very rich part of the biography, a point on which I insisted long time and again on how to feel negotiated this, um, both in his personal life, in his uh, observations in America, and then in his uh, political commitments in France. Uh, uh, and of course, there were others. He, he got very invested in the colonial project as well. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned his crisis of faith which uh, happens in his father's library when he's, I believe, 16. Uh, but it was something that he uh, uh, was very uh, saddened by uh, the, and, and troubled with and this, uh, this crisis of faith. And he basically, he basically has a, a lifelong struggle uh, to, to regain it. And it's something that, uh, like I said, it's very... Uh, it weighs on him heavily uh, throughout his life, this crisis of faith. That is correct. That is absolutely correct. It's a popular reading of it. And, and But I do think that toward the end of his life, he's made peace with, with it. And and, uh, um, and he's genuinely asking for the last sacraments before he, he goes, uh, before he dies. He dies young because he, he had a case of tuberculosis and, and died at age 53. Uh, uh, by some, fortunately, uh, he was able to give us um, at least one of the planned volumes on the Ancien Régime and the French Revolution. But, but he had a short life. Yeah, he had a, 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 a sort of a lifelong uh stomach uh issue that he dealt with uh that you know left him in a lot of pain um and you know uh debilitated him for you know uh 
long beards of quite, quite yeah. often, yeah. But, and it's uh, yeah. funny, I mean, you can sort of tell by his, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the official portrait, the, the, the Theodore uh, Cesario uh, portrait, which uh, is him sort of to, almost near the end of his life, about a decade before he's uh, to pass away. But um, he's very, uh, not frail looking, but he's uh, slight uh, looking, yeah, but he's, he's but, quite, but he's, very very youthful though. I mean, uh, the portrait uh, you know is is painted when he's uh, you know 40, 45, 44 years old, something like that. But he looks very. Uh, it's the same. The, the portrait is used on the cover of the of the book uh, as well. Yeah. Um, he's very uh, youthful looking in appearance. A very expressive, uh, dark eyes. But if you were looking, if you were to just you know, if you were just standing in front of the portrait and and just looking at it and you know didn't know the history of it or didn't know who he was or anything and if you were to you know uh, someone were to ask you how old do you think this uh this man is you'd probably say oh you know late 20s early 30s maybe i mean he's a um he's a youthful countenance yeah this is very, you're very observant Tim, because because um, in effect um Tocqueville didn't pose for it. He didn't have the time to pose for it. And and Chasserio most likely used a pencil portrait of uh, 15 years earlier to draw the painting. That's, so that's why. So that's why he looks so young in the portrait. Yeah, that's oh, okay. why he looks so young. All right. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's a very good observation. I, oh, thank you. Actually, um, not many people have uh, mentioned it, so oh. <laughs> it's good. Oh, thanks. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, and then you mentioned um, uh, his interest in the colonial project. Uh, at least earlier in his life, he's a very uh, a staunch supporter of this project, uh, the French colonial project, especially in uh, Algeria. Um, uh, he saw Algeria as sort of the, uh, the French version of the American uh, frontier where, uh, you know, you can... Uh, sort of a, a uh, safety valve, I guess, for the uh, for the French polity to um, you know uh, to get people who uh, who potentially are you know who want to move uh, or are looking for a better life and uh, can't seem to find it where they are, and this gives them the opportunity to uh, try their luck somewhere else, and it would you know potentially relieve uh, the pressure of of uh, further um, <laughs> further revolutionary moments, I'll put it that way in uh, in uh, in France. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. Now, of course, this is a a, a, a position that uh, is no longer acceptable as a liberal position, and mm-hmm. and and so many. Critics of Tocqueville's works uh, have pointed out the seeming contradiction between Tocqueville the Democrat and Tocqueville the Colonialist. Uh, of course, uh, and it's not good enough to dismiss this criticism by saying, "Well, just say it was the age of empires, and there was a, a national consensus on 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 pretty broad national consensus from right to left." on the colonial project, which is true. Uh, but it's not quite enough because it is, it is also true 
that the uh, colonization of Algeria was very brutal, uh, and uh, 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 that the uh, uh, well, it was brutal on both sides, of course. But but the French army didn't hesitate to uh, resort to to the most drastic tactics to uh, win the war and and pacify the country and and get uh, Abdel Kader's uh, uh, submission, the rendition, uh, uh, and and Douglas supported it. Uh, he was in the chamber and he supported it. It's not the uh, only instance where you can see this kind of uh, contradictions. For example, uh, even though I mentioned Tocqueville well, the abolitionist, and uh, but but he he would not Tocqueville would as a politician in the chamber would not let the the, the British police the slave trade uh, on 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 French uh, uh, on French boats uh, uh, on French ships. He's a patriot. Uh, so, uh, first yeah, and uh, foremost. Yeah, so first and foremost, a patriot. So. So and I think I think that blinded him uh, 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 in that sense. Um, so you could think of uh, the colonial project. Uh, I told you to say, well, there's a lot of land out there. The Arabs will sell it uh, easily. Uh, it was already part of the Ottoman Empire before, so now it'd be part of the French Empire, and 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 we can work this out. But then, uh, kind of. Knowingly uh, uh, support. I mean, supported the conquest. Many of his friends were in the army. Um, his youngest, uh, oldest friend, uh, childhood friend, Pierre Gollet, was among the first soldiers going there. His brother wanted to go there. So anyway, he supported this. And uh, as you as you pointed out, but his his case of extreme nationalism could blind him. No question about it. And my work as a biographer is not to be an apologist. Um, so I didn't try to cover this up at all. Uh, I think it was, but it, it, it was, um, now toward the end of his, uh, life, uh, uh, during the, uh, in the, in the 1850s and, and during the Sepoy rebellion in India, until mm. we had returned to England and he had changed his mind. Uh, he, he advised, uh, he pushed all his British friends, he had many, uh, in high spheres of government, uh, not to um, uh, be not to not to be excessively repressive against the rebellion, uh, to be decent. Of course, that didn't go anywhere. But but nonetheless, he had changed his mind on colonies of settlement, making a great difference between between political domination and settlement. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think you can. I would hesitate to harshly judge him for. I mean, it, I mean, in in the context of the time, uh, you know, the reasoning behind uh, his reasoning behind it is is sound. I mean, a bit, you know, but of course, you know, when reason comes up against reality, that's a different story. And you know, the, um, uh, you know, the 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 goal uh was not you know obviously the uh the the warfare and, and sort of terrorism that that happened uh in algeria and that's gonna you know uh, be a problem up until uh you know it gains its independence in the you know the mid 
20th century. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, Tocqueville's not saying, hey, let's go in there and, you know, uh, push all the Arabs away and, and the Berbers away and, uh, you know, no, yeah, he, 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 he assumes that there's enough room in Algeria for everybody uh, that, uh, you know, that they'll be able to, uh, at a minimum, you know, peacefully, that the different uh, societies will peacefully uh, be able to uh, coexist uh, oh, next yeah, next yeah. to each other, and uh, you know that obviously uh, doesn't end up happening. Um, but uh, you know, so it's not like he's uh, <laughs> uh, you know um, uh, what's the what's the word I'm trying to look for? He's not uh, uh, a, a callous imperialist in a way. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Right. There's nothing callous. There's nothing callous about this man. Actually, he, he one of the intellectual uh, marks of his life, uh, uh, the, the sort of the fabric of his character, he's, he's, he, he constantly fights against doubt. He's, he's, he's constantly crippled by that, doubting his own opinion. Mm-hmm. And reworking it, and so on and so forth. So, so I think you, you have somebody who... Um, uh, as you pointed out, uh, supported the national project of uh, uh, the colonial project at the same time that he was trying to abolish slavery, uh, uh, fighting uh, numerous battles on the equality, uh, on equality, um, and and so so this is a very complex figure, both intellectually and politically, mm-hmm. and that's what made his. Uh, narrating his life uh, a real challenge for me but make mm-hmm. it all worth it yeah so all right let's turn now to uh well that momentous year of uh, 1848 uh we see the fall of the uh the july the july monarchy in in, in france and then the birth of the of the second republic and and uh, tocqueville is uh sort of rejuvenated uh by this by the by the birth of the of the new republic, um, he says, you know, finally, you know, I, uh, you know, I can be one thing and not uh, two things, you know, not, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't have to worry about supporting uh, the monarchy anymore. I can just be sort of a, you know, full out uh, democrat. Um, and he, so he's rejuvenated by this. He's uh, he he's involved. Uh, uh, somewhat in, in the crafting of uh, the new French Constitution, uh, and he serves a, a, a very brief stint as a Minister of Foreign Affairs. Um, but um, sure, <laughs> but the uh, Second Republic is not very long lived. It uh, ends sort of almost as soon as it begins with the uh, the coup by uh, Louis Napoleon, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew. Uh, who uh, abolishes the Second Republic and announces the uh, the Second French Empire with himself as uh, uh, Empire Napoleon III. And uh, after this, uh, after the coup, uh, Tocqueville is just going to... Uh, that's the end of his political career. He, he refuses to uh, legitimize the uh, the coup and the uh, the empire... Uh, Louis Napoleon's empire in any way, uh, and just uh, just sort of withdraw uh, withdraws from uh, from public life in that uh, in that fashion uh, for the rest of his life. 
Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think uh, this is when uh, well the the brief so it, you're right to point out that the Second Republic he embraces after some hesitation and he participated in the first uh, white male universal suffrage election. I said I said white male because I mean the French is, is, is I mean I should say just male universal suffrage. Uh, uh, in in eighteen in eighteen forty eight, and is elected. Uh, so so that was a major uh, um, major event. Uh, the not so much the fact that he was elected that was probably uh, a given, but but um, uh, the, the the ways in which he campaigned and and embraced this idea of popular support as opposed to a very limited electorate. Uh, based on, on, you know, on wealth, uh, on the franchise. So, so that that's one thing. The second, he he is one of the influential members uh, of the constitutional committee. That is, he writes the constitution of the Second Republic. Uh, not a small achievement. And then uh, he continues his work on uh, the abolition of slavery and the rest of it. And. Um, uh, and then uh, 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 he had this brief stint as foreign minister, and then that, that was not successful uh, because because he the, the the French army even before Tocqueville became minister had restored the Pope to temporal power by uh, uh, um, uh, ending the the revolution in Rome um, and. Uh, and Tocqueville really he wanted to to um, lead the Pope towards liberal reforms in the papal states, and he failed to do so. So he and then and then and then and then he the ministry came to an end. Uh, we don't necessarily have to go into the details of that history. The point is that yes, Tocqueville after this brief stint in power. Uh, 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 resigned after the coup, uh, and then uh, finishes his life as a historian, uh, uh, writing on the on the French Revolution and and it's uh, when he wanted really to write on the on the French Revolution and its aftermath, and he ended up only writing on the French old regime and why the revolution came in the first place, and never had. A, a chance to continue his work, but the basic idea was: how was it possible that the revolution, uh, which wanted to bring about uh, a whole new era of freedom uh, and equality, liberty and equality again, uh, ended up in despotism, that is, the reign of the First Empire, and how does this? Cycle repeat itself in French history. That was this big project, uh, uh, and uh, uh, how is it uh, uh, possible that uh, the 1830 revolution um, uh, to bring in a, a constitutional monarchy failed to do that, and ends up uh, 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 well, those bring the constitutional monarchy, but then. Uh, 
Uh, but then not really, and then it ends up in yet another revolution in 1848, and that revolution in 1848 ends up with the return of the of the empire, as you pointed out. So there's just this cycle of the French fighting for freedom and, and equality, and then always giving up to despotism. Um, so Tocqueville is obsessed with this, rightly so, and that's what he wants to write about. But he dies too young to do it, so he only writes a preface to this big work. Mm-hmm. Which is his book on the Ancien Regime. Yeah, the Ancien Regime and the Revolution, uh, not as well known, uh, obviously, as, as Democracy in America. Uh, but why is that a book uh, still also uh, worth reading today, uh, you know, uh, for an American well, audience? It, I mean, obviously, it, I, I see the I see the uh, attraction to a French audience, but uh, for an American audience, why why is that book still worth reading? Well. There are a couple of um, uh, reasons for it. Uh, uh, the most obvious reason is that it is a masterpiece. Uh, it, it's interesting, actually, to compare the two books, The Old Regime and uh, uh, Democracy in America. Democracy in America is a brilliant book, but it's a young man's book. It's, it's pretty disorganized. Uh, there are some long chapters or uh, short chapters. This can be quite repetitive. Uh, it's brilliant, but but it, it is a young man's book. It's not the, the Ancien Regime is an older man's book. It's very and somebody who has been around for a while and knows the knows power, knows politics, knows a lot of stuff. And it's very well balanced. It's uh, every chapter is exact same length. Uh, there's not an extra word in it. It's a very polished book. I mean, it's a different kind of reading experience. Um, this being on the substance of it. Uh, I think uh, American audience uh, uh, discover uh, a few things here. First of all, perhaps uh, most importantly, is the theory of revolution. That is, Tocqueville, by comparing uh, 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 British, French, and especially German histories, uh, histories. Uh, the comparison between France and Germany is very important in that book. Uh, comes up with this idea, this theory, that the revolution happens only when there's uh, when there's only when there's already uh, significant reforms underway. That is, that people do not re- do, do not rebel or do not start revolution when they are totally oppressed. It's only when they when when they have a feel for what freedom is like, and and uh, uh, that they they embark in a revolutionary project, and he tried to prove this through French history by showing how, in so many ways, the so-called reforms of the revolution had been implemented in the previous seventy eight years uh, pretty systematically. Uh, and that the revolutionary pronouncements are mostly for- formalizing reforms that have already uh, 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 taken place. And and that's a really interesting argument, mm-hmm. historical argument. So, of course, it doesn't... Cons- uh, and, and so there's... If democracy in America is about a theory of democracy, if you're interested in the theory of revolutions, then I think the Ancien Regime is a very important book to read, in addition to its to its brilliance. All right. Uh, backtracking a little bit, and I know we're running out of time here, but I uh, wanted to get to this. Uh, 
back to 1848 and uh, the June Days Uprising or the the Journées de, de Juin. Uh, sorry again for my French <laughs> pronunciation. Uh, the the June Days Uprising uh, is going to lead uh, Tocqueville to conclude basically that there's no imaginable connection uh, between socialism and and democracy. Could you talk a little a uh, little bit about that and how uh, he came to that conclusion? Well, the the, the idea, and, and I think we can we we can return to where we started this conversation mm-hmm. about uh, about um, um, the relevance of uh, Tocqueville for our current for thinking about our current situation. One of the things that Tocqueville really feared uh, in France is that once the extremes politically. Oh, uh, in French history, there was a case, but I think we, we can generally fear this for this country as well right now. Once the extremes uh, are heard and taking power, then they want all of it. They, they they don't want to share the conversation, work out our differences with the opposite side, uh, but instead uh, uh, take over uh, the whole government. So, so the fear is that there was no possible dialogue with the socialists. That's when they were in, it was all of it or nothing. And and uh, uh, so, Tocqueville made a very strong distinction here between a socialist movement that was revolutionary and a democratic movement. But I think this is was this idea that I've just expressed about the impossibility of. Uh, Negotiating differences between extreme, uh, between two extreme positions, in order to reach some kind of not wishy-washy center, but sometimes a dynamic that will allow us to move further. Uh, I think we are very much in this situation now, and that's the situation that Tobin was fearing in 1840. Okay, and uh, one more thing uh, uh, before we go, uh, another of his uh, works but this one um this one was published uh, posthumously not until uh you know maybe i would just kind of believe 1893 i believe it was uh, uh mm-hmm. published uh, yeah. so so 40 years after his death um is, is his book the the recollections which um uh there's you know a version uh that uh from university of virginia press that you uh edited uh, of this work with an uh, Arthur Goldhammer, the translator, the same who you've worked with before on uh, uh, democracy in America for the you know the Library of America edition, and then um, uh, also for your uh, the book on uh, Tocqueville and Beaumont's uh, travels in America. Uh, but uh, the the recollections again po- posthumously published, not uh, certainly not as famous as Democracy in America or uh, the ancien regime and the revolution. Uh, but again, why why is this uh, another uh, uh, sort of masterpiece and and uh, worth reading? Well, it, it I mean it's worth reading because I mean it's, it's it, I, I don't think it's necessarily easily easy read if you don't know French history because mm-hmm. there are such, so many so many. Uh, Characters in there, you have to have some familiarity with them. And, and in English, in the in the English edition I did, 
I I did a, a biographical dictionary of the main characters in the back of the book to help the readers, uh, because many of these people mentioned in the recollections have long been forgotten. And uh, uh, but but here is Douglas only uh, sort of autobiographical book. It was his his attempt to to write his own narrative on what he did during the revolution, why he didn't at first support it, why he felt the king with Philip was responsible for much of it, uh, how he then came to join the movement, uh, he's to justify his actions in the Constitutional Committee and and in the uh, ministry, ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, but it's... it's uh, uh, said he didn't want to have it published because uh, so long as uh, um, uh, before anybody mentioned the book was actually dead because he it, it's it's remarkable because it's a, it, it's really a, a book full of transient judgments on people mm. uh, even showing his own anger uh, uh, against this or that person for this or that reason. It's a wonderful narrative of that event, um, and and it has, uh, but it's it's a different. It, it's yet a third form of expression in Douglas' writing. It's very much worth reading. It's, it's a wonderful book, uh, um, but it's it's a historical document as well. And um, we, uh, our, my friend Art Goldhammer, who is a totally brilliant, absolutely brilliant translator. Um, and I felt that we need to do a new American edition of it, and, and, and we did. Uh, um, it's also a very fun book to read. Actually, the first edition, the 1890s, uh, was not really a literal edition. Uh, it was one of Tosvian's uh, nephews uh, who did it, and he's taken out a lot of, of sections uh, mm. where, you know, family members of People mentioned the book might have been offended by what they said. So the first real unabridged edition really came out in World War II, 42 or 41. Mm. Wow. All right, great. Well, uh, I've already kept you a little bit long. My apologies for that, but uh, uh, I'll end it in <coughs> the podcast with, uh, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, uh, with basically the question I ask everybody that comes on the podcast, and uh, that is. Um, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or you know, what's the what's the one thing you'd want them to to take away from from having read it? Well, uh, I felt that um, uh, it was important for me uh, to show the connection between the uh, manufacturer and the intellectual, the politician and the man of letters. Uh, the synthesis of thought and action, mm. uh, and that uh, some of the we in academic life uh, often live uh, lives among our peers uh, with big opinions on the world out there, but not necessarily much experience of it. Douglas' life is a life where he was really out there in the arena at the same time as a theorist of what was going on, the theorist of democracy, the theorist of revolution. So I, I wanted to uh, illustrate this, uh, the relationship between 
intellectual work and, and, and action, that the two are not mutually exclusive, even though they are very difficult to merge. So I thought that life was an exemplary of this, and it was important to me. Um, I also uh, wanted to show, and I think it's the point you made, uh, the, the very significant uh, uh, part of uh, marketing uh, politics and culture in Tolvi's life. Even though Tolvi spent only nine and a half months in this country when he was a young man, this marked him for his whole life. And that's the point I wanted to make, mostly for the French readership. There's a French edition of the book. Because um, that's the point the Americans are willing to accept regularly, but maybe not people in Europe. So I, I wanted to make that point uh, and explain why. Um, I also had some personal uh, challenges with this book. I've never written a biography before in my life as a historian, so I, that's something I wanted to do. I was the only person whom I could think of who would just talk to me as a, about the country of my youth and talk to me about the country of my adult life. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> well, uh, it definitely, uh, again, the, the name of the book is The Man Who Understood Democracy, The Life of Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, it, it's definitely the uh, the uh, definitive biography of uh, of the man, and probably will be for uh, many years into the future. And it's, uh, again, it's not just a uh, uh, as uh, Dr. Zins had mentioned, it's not just a uh, biography of the man. It's also uh, uh, a uh, investigation into uh, Tocqueville's thought as well. And uh, it's a highly, highly enjoyably uh, readable book about uh, one of America's uh, best friends uh, from a country that is our uh, uh, oldest ally and, uh, and who, for whom uh, a country all Americans should share a, uh, a debt of gratitude uh, toward and... Uh, and uh, yeah, let's put it that way. So uh, highly, highly recommended for uh, anybody out there, anybody out there interested in uh, in French history and American history and American political thought and and uh, political thought on the continent and or just uh, on uh, Tocqueville himself. Uh, highly, highly recommended uh, everybody out there. Uh, so go out and get yourself a copy. And again, uh, to uh, Dr. Zunz, uh, thank you, uh, merci. Uh, thank you very, very much for uh, for coming on the podcast and and discussing uh, uh, discussing your book with me and discussing uh, Alexis de Tocqueville with me. Well, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure, my honor at the same time. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, again, if you like this podcast, please uh, consider leaving us a five star review and and uh, sharing with your friends. And if you have uh, books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, t benson and heartland dot org. That's a t b e n s o n and heartland dot org. And uh, for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we also have our um, uh, our Twitter page for the uh, for the for the podcast. You can reach out to us there if you have any questions or comments or whatnot. Uh, you know, so feel free to uh, give us a follow or send us a DM or all that stuff. Our uh, our Twitter handle is at illbooks at i l l books. So check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. La mer 
qu'on voit danser le long du golf clair à des reflets d'argent la mer des reflets changeants sous la pluie la mer au ciel d'été confond ces blancs moutons avec les anges si purs, la mer, bergère d'azur infinie. Voyez, près des étangs, ces grands roseaux mouillés. Voyez, ces oiseaux blancs. Et ces maisons rouillées, la mer les a bercées le long des golfes clairs et d'une chanson d'amour, la mer a bercé mon cœur pour la vie, la mer. Danser le long des golfes clairs, à des reflets d'argent, la mer, des reflets changeants sous la pluie, la mer, au ciel d'été, confond ses blancs moutons. Avec les anges si purs, la mer, bergère d'azur infinie. Voyez, près des étangs, ces grands roseaux mouillés. Voyez, ces oiseaux blancs et ces Pour 